uh, it's kind of like every week we come back and pick up, like, like you're watching the good, you know, back, some of y'all back when y'all used to watch the Love Boat or something like that every week. You know, you watch a, you watch a show and then you pick it up every week and look at it. The story continues here in Exodus chapter 5. So before we look at it, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for uh, your kindness to us and just so many opportunities we have here, Father, to, to grow and to learn and to serve you. So, God, I ask you that you continue to bless us, you continue to strengthen us, grow us into the image of your Son. Use your word tonight, Father, to, to help us to be better and more faithful believers and followers of you. God, we thank you for this time together. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 5, we pick up here uh, with Moses having gone back to Egypt. That's the way chapter 4 ended, but it didn't get there rather smoothly, if you remember. Whenever God appeared to Moses um, out in the wilderness in Midian, and he, he showed up again, and he revealed himself to Moses. Remember, we know who God is because God has revealed himself. He wouldn't have figured it out on our own. We would have known it. We can look at creation. We can see other things, and we know his majesty and his power. But God reveals himself in a personal way here to Moses when he shows up at the bush that's burning and not consumed. And so he shows up. He calls Moses. And then Moses proceeds, showing he's got a little bit of guts, to have a full conversation with the Lord at this place. God says, Moses, I want you to go and to bring my people out of Egypt, for it is time for me to fulfill my promises that I made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, that I will establish a land for my people. They'd already become great, as Exodus chapter 1 says. Now it's time to give the land to them that I have promised. And so he calls Moses and said, you should go. And Moses uh, says at first, he, he starts to object. Who am I? I mean, what, what have I done? What, what makes me fit for this task? Who am I? I'm not good enough. I'm not sufficient of a leader. Moses at this time is just tending to the flock of his father-in-law Jethro out in the field and has done that for some 40 years. Who am I to go? And the Lord says, I will be with you. That's, that's where you go. And then Moses' second objection, remember, was, was well, well, who are you? What is your name? How, have I, how do I know who you are? Is, and am I just to refer to you as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And the Lord in his graciousness responds with, I am Yahweh. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. No beginning, no end. Nobody can, can, can thwart my plans ultimately. He gives Moses his name. Then Moses says, what if they won't listen? He objects again. And the Lord says, how about you try these signs? And he gives Moses three signs, the rod that turns the staff, that turns to a snake, and, and uh, the hand, remember, that Moses puts in the cloak and pulls out with leprosy, puts back in, and it's healed again. And then ultimately the water of the Nile that will turn to blood. He gives him these three signs. He says, they said, well, they won't believe me. We'll try these signs. And then finally he says, well, I, I, I'm not very good at speaking. I can't speak real well. And now what we see is after this fourth objection of Moses, the Lord is starting to get a little bit frustrated with him, yet he's still gracious. And the Lord says, I'll provide a mouthpiece for you. 
uh, and he does in Moses' brother Aaron, who he hadn't seen in some time. And so the Lord says, Aaron will be with you, and I will speak to you, Moses, and you speak to Aaron, and Aaron will speak to the people. We will do this, right? So all of Moses' objections have been answered by God. And it shows, as we talked about last week, God's patience and kindness and how he is slow, as Psalm 145 tells us, he's slow to anger with us. He's slow to it. He's kind with his people. And even when we object, he, he listens to those objections. But at some point, what it testifies, and the Lord's anger starts to, to kindle a little bit, it testifying to the fact that when we object to God and what he calls us to, at some point, the objections go from some simple little, what about this, what about that, to a lack of belief. And what God did not want Moses to do was get to a lack of belief, Right? I, if I'm calling you, Moses, I will equip you. If I'm calling you to do something, I'll give you what you need. I'm not going to leave you at it. And ultimately, your success or failure is not upon your gifts, your talents, your strength. It's upon me. It's upon me. And so Moses finally relents. He heads back with a little snafu there that his, his wife helps him get through. He heads back to uh, Egypt. And when he gets there, he finds Aaron. They have a reunion of sorts. They go to the people, and there in verse 31, the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. So Moses has returned. Aaron is with him. They've spoken the promises of God again with the people, and the people believed, and they worshiped. Now the next step. And what you have here is that this... Exodus account grows rather slowly, if you will, with Moses and Aaron now beginning to process. And so they're there, they've arrived, the people rejoice and worship God, and now it's time to go to Pharaoh. And that's where we pick up in chapter 5. Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Moses comes to Pharaoh and says, it's time. God, speaking now through Moses, through Aaron to Pharaoh, God says, let my people go that they may, basically he's given the, issue, the, the point of saying that they may serve me. You see, they're serving Pharaoh at this point. But God has already said, like last chapter, let my people go or bring my people out so they may serve me. And Pharaoh is proven to be an abusive, an oppressive master, right? God is the good God and father who wants to, his people to come with him so that they may serve him. And so that's the call. Let them go so that they may serve me. They may worship me. But Pharaoh said... Who is the Lord? Y'all catch that? That's a, that's a mistake. I don't know if y'all, Pharaoh messed up right there. Y'all see what I'm saying? It's going to get bad for Pharaoh, but here Pharaoh demonstrates why it's going to get bad. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. So Pharaoh comes and you have the first approach. And with the first approach, you have this first refusal of Pharaoh to let the people go. Pharaoh refuses to do it. But in this, you also have 
the theme really that Exodus takes off on. The theme of Exodus that kind of flows throughout as this issue of knowing God, right? It's, it's becoming acquainted with and knowing God. Up until this point, in Genesis, God had revealed himself to a family. First to Abram, then to Isaac, then to Jacob. He had revealed himself to them. And in some ways, he'd only shown himself in a few instances outside of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He'd only shown himself in a few instances in those places to some who may see him. Other when Egypt, when Abram went out there, and, and some with Laban and some others. He'd only shown himself to that family in those few instances. But now, God is going to make himself known to the world. The world at that time, I mean, Egypt is the largest of the countries. It's the most powerful of all of them at the time. And God now is going to make himself known. And so this issue is, in Exodus, is God is revealing himself to be known. To be known. Now understand, God is going to call his people out of Egypt and he's going to pull them out, not to leave them or desert them. He wants to be with them. Now, now let that sink in for a moment because it should. God saves his people so that he can be with his people. That becomes the issue. When you read Exodus, this is the whole point. God doesn't just want to pull them out. He wants to dwell with them. And then and, and how can an unholy people dwell with a holy God? Well, that becomes all of that stuff that's required and needed in order for him to be able to dwell with them, right? You got to build him a tabernacle. You got to prepare the sacrifices. You got to make sure you don't touch that Ark of the Covenant because if you do, you're going to fall dead. You got to make sure you can't do all of those rules that come into place in the second half of the book of Exodus, running right Right through, right through Leviticus, all of those rules that come into place come into place because God, the holy God, is going to dwell with his people. And those are the requirements in order for you to dwell with God. God did not leave us to desert us or save us, call us out of Egypt to desert us and leave us. He wants to be with us. But if you as an unholy people are going to live and dwell with a holy God, then here are the requirements that are necessary. Now, if I could just skip ahead. When you read the book of Exodus and you get to all of those things and laws that come up that we think, oh man, those are a lot of stuff. And you get to Leviticus where most of y'all spend your Bible reading time. When you get through all of that, you read all those rules and all those things and the response should be, thank God for Jesus. Because that's what's required of you to dwell with the holy God. Those rules, those necessities, all of that stuff, that's what you have to do if you're going to live with the Holy God unless the Holy God himself redeems you and saves you and makes him yours. And now Jesus fulfills all of that so that we can dwell with him, okay? That's skipping ahead a couple chapters in the Bible, but that's where we come to. And in Exodus, God is making himself known to everyone, including Pharaoh, including Pharaoh. But what's going to happen here 
is Pharaoh who considered himself to be a god. That's what Pharaoh thought of himself. I mean, that's the way he he became Pharaoh. His name wasn't Pharaoh. Y'all understand that, right? His name was Ramses. We saw that earlier. Pharaoh was a title of the leader of Egypt who had united himself with the god Ray, who was the sun god over all. So Pharaoh saw himself as a God. And when he's confronted by the God of Israel, when Aaron comes and says, thus says the Lord God, know also that Moses is not a stranger to Pharaoh. He knows Moses is is a, a Hebrew. He knows he's an Israelite, right? He raised him up in his house. So he knows this. So when he comes and says, thus says the Lord. Now, also note, in your Bibles, uh, a lot of our English translations will have Lord right there with all caps, L-O-R-D. Does anybody see that in their Bible? Mine does. Yours may not. I don't know. But my version has Lord in all caps. That's, that doesn't mean he screamed that name at him. What it means is that's how they differentiate for us that this is where the name Yahweh is used in the scriptures. So when Lord is in all caps, That's that covenant name, Yahweh. Now, they'll use other names for God. We see that all the time. Uh, Elohim, El Shaddai. We use other names for God in the scriptures as he identifies himself in these ways and helping specifically. But Yahweh is the covenant name of God. And so now Aaron, speaking through Moses, comes before Pharaoh and says, I am who I am, has said, you need to let my people go. The one whom you can't control, Pharaoh, the one whom you must look to and answer to, that's who's speaking to you, the God of Israel. And so Pharaoh, in his arrogance and pride, considering himself a God also, says, I do not know him. I don't recognize him. I don't know this one. I don't know the Lord. This is a theme throughout Exodus. The Lord is introducing himself throughout this entire book. To Moses, he did in chapter 3. To the Israelites, he did in chapter 4. And now to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh may say, I don't know him, but he's about to know him. He's about to know who he is. Pharaoh will know the Lord and the Israelites will know the Lord. The Israelites will know him personally as the God who delivers them and saves them and redeems them. Pharaoh will know him as an adversary who he thinks he can control and overpower. This knowledge, the knowledge that we have of God must be personal. Pharaoh's would not be. This is also our dependence upon Jesus is because you may have heard this before, but in order to find salvation, you must have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Does everybody get what I mean? And what we mean by this is that we know him, who he is and what he's done. You'll hear me say that phrase this past Sunday all the time. You know him. How do you know him? You know who he is. You know what he's done for you. We use some language sometimes, I feel like that confuses things, to be honest. I understand it, we all understand it, and it's fine. But when we try to explain it sometimes to people who haven't been raised in church or in other places, it kind of can come confusing. Just 
try to pull that off in just a relationship with somebody who has never heard of the name Jesus, never been in church, and you'll find how many church words and phrases we use that we have to really explain to understand. And one of them is, and it's not a bad thing, but we often talk about experiencing God, right? I know there's a book by it. It's a good book. But the Bible doesn't necessarily speak of experiencing God as if he's somebody to experience. That would be a weird way to talk about somebody. You know what I'm saying? That's how I met Allison. I experienced her one night. You know what I'm saying? That was great. Nobody speaks like that. We get to know him, a personal relationship. He is identifying himself as a person, the first person of the Trinity, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. We get to know him. And so people understand that. What we're talking about here is a relationship. What we're talking about is a relationship. And that relationship can be one of two ways. It can be a personal relationship where we understand who he is and what he has done and we follow him And we learn more about him. We grow in him. And the more you spend time with him, the more you know him. It's the same way it works with any kind of relationship. The more you spend time, the more you know. The more you read his word, the more you know. The more you pray, the more you know of him. And really, the healthiest and most mature Christians are those who know the Lord who have gotten, invested their time and growth in knowing him. And the more you know him, the more you love him. It works that way in every way. So you either have a personal relationship where you know him and love him as the father who cares for his people, or you're like Pharaoh. You see, the Bible doesn't give us a middle ground anywhere. There's no really middle here. The Bible never even gives, there's no category of people that are, I don't even know how to put it because it's not even there. You know what I'm saying? You either or or you are not. You either know him personally or you do not. You're either, and we can move this on down into our language. We, We either are born again or we are not. You're either on the wide path or you are on the narrow path. You're either a sheep, as Jesus says, or a goat. You're either a child of God or a child of the devil, as John 8, says. I mean, there's no middle ground either. Either you know him personally or you do not. Or you do not. And so either you are his or you are an adversary of him. So to be friends with the world, as he says, is an enmity with God. It's not a middle. It's not not impartial. You can't be Switzerland, you know. You're either on one side or the other. And Pharaoh chose wrongly. Because Pharaoh says, in his arrogance and pride, I do not know him. But I want y'all to get this as well, because I don't want to beat anybody up. But anybody... Anybody who thinks that they're smarter than God or they do not need God or that they they don't have to submit to God or come into his authority are just like Pharaoh. They don't know him. They don't know him. So to look at Pharaoh and go, God, that's kind of arrogant. All of us were at that point at some point in our life. And all of us have acted like that. And sometimes here or there or yon, 
as if we're smarter, as if we know better than God. God tells us what he requires of us and what God requires of us actually is how we flourish in this life. We don't think of it that way sometimes, but God knows best. And when God knows best, when we apply ourselves to God, we flourish even when difficult things happen. So God knows best for us. Sin is the idea that we know better than God. We're smarter than he is. Pharaoh at this point demonstrates that, similar to the way Adam and Eve demonstrated it in the garden. I don't know him. I don't know him. And so ultimately, who is the Lord? I do not know the Lord. Pharaoh believes himself to be in charge, and so Pharaoh, being the one in charge, says, y'all get back to work. Then they said, God, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. Uh, Pharaoh responds with a impatient, sarcastic, dismissive statement. Don't, don't come at me with this nonsense. Get back to work. And if you think it's burdensome, you think this is bad, you know, you're, you're complaining about your work, I'm going to make it worse. Go make bricks without straw. Egypt was not a place where straw would grow, so you had a supply chain. Now, none of us really thought about supply chains until the last couple years, right? We blame supply chains for everything. That's why you can't get anything at the store, supply chain. That's why something's going to take six, seven, eight months from now because, hey, supply chain, right? We, we understand that. Same way, the straw, which was used to make the brick and fortify the stone in Egypt before you throw it into the furnace to cook the brick, you would fill it with straw so as to make it stronger. And so they would supply the straw for the Israelites so that they could take the straw, make the bricks, make them stronger as they are working. Now they're saying, you not only have to produce bricks, you got to find your own straw which was not native to Egypt. It had to be brought in on the supply chain. And so here, Pharaoh is acting not only irresponsibly in saying, I don't know the Lord, but I'm going to tell you what, you want to go away for three days? Get back to work. Go back to your burdens. And let me tell you about your burdens. We're going to make it even more burdensome. Go make your bricks without straw. Pharaoh is demonstrating again how he is not a good Lord. He is not a good master, but he is oppressive. So Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many and, make, and, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day, Pharaoh doesn't waste any time. Let's get on this. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it for they are idle. Therefore, they cry. Let us go up and offer sacrifices to God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. Pharaoh says, they want to go up and leave, make it harder for them. Be more oppressive. Come down more. So don't give them straw and require of them to produce the same amount of bricks. Keep their quota where it is. Keep their quota where it is. God had already warned Moses that Pharaoh would not listen. 
If you think back or look back to chapter 3, verse 19, he says, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. He'd already told Moses this is the way it's going to be. And so when God does this, this is a part of the process itself. You go to Pharaoh and Pharaoh demonstrates his hard-heartedness as it told us at the end of chapter 4. He demonstrates that, that he doesn't know God. And he, he, he demonstrates himself as an oppressive ruler over the people of God so as to make the people long for the one who is not oppressive, Right? All of this works in the process of God calling his people to himself. And while it seems like, why is God doing this? He's building the case. He's demonstrating who he is over against the oppressive nature of Pharaoh. He is the good master. He is the good father. And so here, Pharaoh demonstrates all of this. He says, the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out, said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can and find it, but your work shall not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task, each day as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Great requirement was put on them. Burdens were placed all the more. Make the same amount of bricks without straw. And when they did not succeed, no grace, no mercy, only beatings happened. Only beatings happened. Remember what God told Moses. Can you compare and contrast now the God of Israel with Pharaoh? Because that's what we're doing here. You've got two that are coming to head And the God of Israel in chapter 4 has Moses bring up four objections to why it's not him. And what does the God of Israel do? I'll be with you. My name is Yahweh. I'll give you some signs. I'll give you Aaron to speak through you. In each one of the objections, the God of Israel answers with grace and with mercy to his people. And now you find Pharaoh who is compared here. So in other words, the God of Israel who calls Moses, not only calls him to a task, but does what? Equips him for the task. He gives him what he needs to accomplish it and more so. When he says, when he says, watch out, I'm getting a little wild. When he says, go and do this, and he says, I'm not good enough. I can't do it. What what does the Lord say? I'll be with you. That's way more than he needs. He gives him more than he needs. When he says, they won't believe me, I'll give you some signs. He doesn't just give him one, he gives him three. When he says, I'll be with you, he gives him his brother to work with him and speak with him. More than just a mouthpiece, he gives him a, a, a one to walk alongside him that will bear his arms up in the midst of the battle, right? God is gracious and he's more than gracious to his people in chapter 4 and in chapter 5. Pharaoh, the, the, the one who thinks he is the God in this world, comes back and he is oppressive. There's no mercy and grace in him. In fact, the more it pushes, the more he takes away, the more he punishes, the more pain he brings He does not equip the people for the task. He makes demands of them and does not give them what they need to pull it off. 
And in many ways, this demonstrates the very nature of the battle here in life, right? We have a God who is gracious and kind to us. A God who has demonstrated his kindness. He gives us more than we need in the giving of his son, Jesus Christ. He blesses us with the blessings of heaven, as Ephesians says. He showers them on us more than we could ever know. Y'all just sit back as children of God and try to count your blessings. It's more than you can take. To think of what you deserve, yet what you get, is more than we can handle to be thinking of the grace and mercy of God. He's more than gracious with us. And what I'm telling you is that the gods of this world and whatever it is this world offers us in replace of the God of Israel, the true and living God, the gods of this world are oppressive and they only take, they never give. They take and they take and they take and they never satisfy. They take and they take and they take and they never equip you. They never give you what they need. you need. They only take more from you when you follow them. Satan himself is that way. When Satan goes to Adam and Eve, he tempts them. And when he takes it, he takes more and he takes more and he takes more until the next one day they wake up and one son has already murdered the other. It went from bad to really bad real quick, right? Because he's only going to take. He's never going to give. So here the contrast of the God of Israel versus Pharaoh, the God of this world, in some representative faction, shows that the God of Israel is the one who's giving and equips his people. The gods of this world only take from their people and are oppressive. It also shows that there is always, has been, and always will be on this side of heaven opposition to God's purposes in life. You're always going to find opposition. I mean, you find it in the garden. You find it there in the first chapters of Genesis. You find it at Babel. You find it all the way throughout in, in, in Genesis, and now you find it here. There's always going to be opposition to God's purposes. Those who have no personal relationship with him are going to oppose him. And when you serve God, just like the Israelites find out, because they keep going, the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks, and behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is your own people. But he said, you are idle, you are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. So here these Hebrew foremen come up and they're supposed to be the ones that enforce this. But he's saying, how are you putting more on us and not giving us what we need to do it? This doesn't make any sense. And Pharaoh's response was what? You bunch of lazy bums. You don't work hard enough. You want to go out and offer some sacrifice in the wilderness? You're just lazy. He takes and he takes. Go now and work. No straw will be given to you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foreman of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in the hand to kill us. Whenever this happens, 
whenever oppression and opposition comes to God's people, it can lead to pretty significant discouragement. Recognize that the scriptures don't hide the fact that those of us who are children of God, that does not mean all of life is going to be really wonderful, right? There's still suffering. There's still difficulty. There's still pain that comes in this world under this oppressive system that is there. There's still those things. And so ultimately that can lead to discouragement. But there's promises too. There's promises. Moses turned to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why do you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do. In other words, yes, Moses he, he doesn't judge Moses for this complaint. Moses cries out to God. And like what happens so often in scripture, when God's people cry out to God, what does he do? He acts. In some way, God wants to get us desperate for him. Moses knows at this point there's nowhere else to go. He is in a rock and a hard place position. He is there. He has made his statement known that he is serving the God of Israel now. He's gone against the household of Pharaoh that he was born in. He's serving the God of Israel, and the God of Israel has made a command. He has made himself known. Moses knows that if the God of Israel does not act on behalf of his people, he's a dead man. By the way, same situation for all of us. If God has not acted on our behalf, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. And so he knows this. It's if God, if you don't do something, you are dead. So Moses cries out in desperation to God to act. And God says, now we're going to see it. Up until this point, you can, you can say, we can sit here and try to determine, we don't know why God does all that he does. What we do know is that what God does is to bring his people to himself. Everything he does has a purpose to redeem and save his people. That's what this whole Bible's about. He's doing all of this to redeem and save his people. And these Old Testament passages of God's redemption in these situations are pointing us to that one passage that is showing us of Jesus who will redeem us ultimately and finally. And sometimes God has to get us to the rock bottom to understand we are desperate for him. We got to have him. We don't have him. We don't have anything. And Moses now says, that's it. I've got to have you. If you don't act, God, don't, don't leave us here now. We've done this. I've acted. It's time. And the Lord says, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. God's about to turn this thing in such a way that he ain't going to have to say, Pharaoh, let my people go again. Pharaoh's going to kick them out of his land. I love that passage. Read it a little bit this week, I think, uh, uh, recently in a sermon, where it says that the Lord will make his enemies his footstool. I love that passage. Because what we see, and we talked about it, I, I, I talked about it a little bit in Acts, 
I mean, you just see opposition after opposition in the book of Acts. I mean, the whole first part of it is you got opposition. I mean, it, it, the gospels end with opposition. Jesus has opposition his whole ministry with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the leadership. And then it ultimately, they put him to death. But at every step, God overrules their ruling. I mean, that's the whole point of, of, the, of, of Peter's sermon in Acts 2. This Jesus whom you crucified, God raised up. You made a ruling. You, you had your little council. You nailed your little gavel. I'm sure they used gavels or something. You hit your little gavel. Death. Crucify him. You made a ruling. They carried it out. You got the Romans to figure that out and do the same thing. Y'all scream, give us Barabbas. Y'all scream, crucify him. Y'all did it. Y'all put him to death. But you need to know that God overruled that ruling. That's what Peter's saying. You can make all the rulings you want. You cannot thwart the plan of God. In fact, Peter says, not only did God overrule that ruling, you who are guilty or were acting just in accord with what God had planned from the beginning. Y'all ever watch, and some of y'all may not see this. I love the, 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 the C.S. Lewis, Narnia stuff, right? And so you read the line, the witch in the wardrobe. Y'all read that this week? You need to read it. And you got the white witch. I'm getting into it. Y'all think I'm crazy. You got the white witch. It's a picture of the gospel. That's what he's doing. You got the white witch and she's sitting there and, and, and they're trying to let one of the, the Pavenzies go, Edmund. He got busted. He got caught because he wanted some Turkish delight. It was candy. And so they're trying to let one of him, let him go. And so she goes in with Aslan, the lion, right? And she goes in and she has a consultation with him. And Aslan comes out and she said, he says, he can go free because they had a deal set. And so the white witch rides away. She's happy as she can be. She has set Edmund free because she got what she wants. And they take Aslan up to the stone table where the law comes and they put Aslan on it. She shaved Aslan's mane and she kills Aslan right there. You see what happened was Edmund got to go free because Aslan gave his life for him. But then guess what happens a couple days later? Aslan comes back to life and the stone table of the law breaks in half because Aslan has done it. And what Aslan's response is whenever they says, how did you get her to figure it out? He said, she may have known some magic. I knew the deeper magic. And the point was she thought she had a plan, but my plan was deeper and greater. That's exactly what Peter says in Acts 2. I didn't give that to you on Sunday. I didn't think y'all could handle that on a Sunday. But Wednesday nights are better. That's exactly what happens. You had a plan to put him to death. God overruled you because he had a greater plan. And right here, what we are seeing is that Pharaoh has a plan to oppress the people of God. But God's going to overrule him. He has a greater plan for his people. And his plan is to get his people to the land he has promised them and nothing can stop it, not even Pharaoh. And he's about not just to show Pharaoh who he is, he's about to dismantle every belief Pharaoh trusts in. He's about to show him, you trust in the Nile, I'll turn that to blood. You worship the sun, I'll black that out so you can't see your hand in front of your face. You think your livestock can give you food, I'll kill every single one of them. You don't like frogs, I'll give you a mess of frogs, right? I'm going to do it all. I'm going to show you every step of the way. Whatever it is you're trusting in, I will dismantle your entire belief system, Pharaoh. 
You see, the plagues weren't just God up there playing games. He was showing Pharaoh, there is nothing that I do not have power over. And you think you can worship all of these things? I will dismantle them all. So the Lord says, now we're ready. How does he start that? God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of my people. God responds to the cries of his people. Y'all get that? I have heard the groaning of my people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant, my promise. It's not as if God forgot it. He's saying it's time. Now is the time. We may not understand it always. We may not get it, but God's time is always right on time. Now was the perfect time. In God's understanding, let's go get them. And so he says again to Abraham, say there, excuse me, to Moses, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from the slavery from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. You want to get to know him? He just introduced himself again. I tried my best to read that with some emphasis. I don't know if you heard. But how is God doing? This is about me redeeming you, Moses. I will do it. This is not going to be in your strength. I'm not going to require you to make bricks without straw. I'm making that for you. I'm not going to require you to do something you can't do. I'll do it for you. I'm not going to ask you to attempt something that you could never accomplish on your own because if you were to rise up against Pharaoh right now, he would crush you, but he can't crush me. I will do it for you. And what we need to remember is there is no way any of us ever find salvation unless the Lord does it for us. I will do it. It's time. It's time. Moses spoke to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. What we see here is that the world is full of those who oppose God's will. The world is full of those who oppose God's will, who follow themselves and follow their own understandings. The world is full of them. Our message will not always be received enthusiastically. God says, it's time, I'm about to deliver them. And the people you think, oh, let's rally together. They didn't rally. The message the Lord brings will not always be received enthusiastically. 
enthusiastically. But in our discouragement then, in our discouragement, we must focus on the destination. You see, oftentimes we get caught up with the circumstances around us. In our discouragement, we get caught up on the opposition we face, the difficulty, the suffering, the pain that's right in front of us. And what God reminds us of is that we must keep our eyes on what's waiting us ahead. God, in many ways, just like the, the, the Israelites will be here, is saving us out of the bondage of slavery and sin. And now we are strangers and sojourners and pilgrims walking through the wilderness until he gets us safely home with him in the promised land. Y'all see what I'm saying? And so God is doing it. So what he calls the people to is to focus on the destination that is coming, not the discouragement that you're facing right now. Look at what's coming as he gives them the promise. I will deliver you. I will take you home. I will get you there. Don't focus on the discouragement of today. Focus on the destination that we are going to. That's exactly what we see in Hebrews chapter 12. Y'all remember that passage in Hebrews that points to Jesus as our, as our uh, trailblazer in the faith, if you will. The one who has blazed the path for us. He says, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let's run with endurance the race said before us. Look into Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Y'all got that? Despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus went through the cross, which I would go ahead without hesitation and say to each and every one of us, what Christ went through on the cross is not less than anything we have gone through. In fact, we don't know the pain and agony that he's experienced as the only perfect son of God that died having been separated from the father. And he went through that difficulty for what reason? With the joy set before him. He knew what was on the other side. He knew what was coming. He said, I'll go through the cross because I know what I'm waiting for. I know what I'm getting to. And so for us as God's people that are oftentimes in the wilderness and we see the mercy and grace of God, we face opposition, we have difficulty, we have struggle, but we also have a destination that keeps us grounded and knowing, knowing that that's what I'm waiting for, not here. If you are looking at any time, even as a believer, for this world to satisfy you, you will be left unsatisfied. It will never be enough. Jesus is enough. And what we long for is not more of Christ because he's given us all we need. What we long for is all of heaven where we see him face to face. And finally and completely, all of that pain and all of that heartache is wiped away when he knocks every tear out of our eye. That's what we look toward. So we endure it because we know what? It is slight and momentary. I tell y'all all the time, my, 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 my heroes in the faith, and most of them were dead before I was born. But... David Martin Lloyd-Jones, pastor in England, 
who I love dearly. You can listen to his sermon still. He's got that British accent and he says, the wrath of God, you know, so that makes me, whew. And so when he was on his deathbed, his daughter says that every night he couldn't speak. He had lost his voice. But every night he would turn to the Bible, which was open to Corinthians, and he would point. Not being able to speak, weak, really wasn't eaten, she said, but he would point right there to that passage, asking her to read it again. And we know that trials and difficulties we face are only slight and momentary compared to the glory that awaits us. You may think it's difficult burdens, and it is. Not making them, not lessening them, not cheapening them. Surely they are. But those burdens are only preparing you for the glory that comes. And when we read this Exodus, that oppression of Pharaoh is only preparing the people of God for the great and glorious Father who will feed them every day, who will provide for them in every way, who will be present with them in everything. He takes care of it all, and that contrast will be seen and known. And whatever difficulty, even in Egypt, making bricks without straw, is only slight and momentary compared to the day they get to the land flowing with milk and honey. And so it is for us, slight and momentary, because we serve a father who is good and kind to his people. And he has said, I will save you. I will deliver you. I will bring you out of the bondage of sin and deliver you to the everlasting life, eternal life of the father. I will get you safely home as well. The Lord has said that to us. And so that's what we trust in. And the people will learn that lesson. Though they're bewildered and struggling now, they're about to see it because God says, I'm about to introduce myself to Pharaoh. We'll pick up on that next. Lord, help us. Thank you for your kindness in demonstrating your goodness to us through salvation in your son, Jesus Christ. Help us, Father, to love you and serve you, knowing that you have done everything needed to save us from our sins. All of this we ask in Jesus, we pray. Amen.